Uh, kids, you are dismissed to Gospel Project. Thank you to the volunteers that will go with them and teach them during this time. Hey, Owen. Owen, high five. So this morning, Jessica had told me that Owen was going was gonna to do a testimony this morning. And I think Owen, Owen got a little, were you a little scared to do it? A little nervous? She told me, she said, he said he's too tired to do it. So I pulled him out of class and I said, I said, Owen, come here for a sec. And he jumped up and was smiling. And he comes out, he said, yeah, what's going on? I said, all right, I'm going to shut the door for a second. I said, Owen, um, why don't you want to speak this morning? I'm too tired, right? <laughs> and I said, you're faking. <laughs> but I'm glad that, that you came up and did that. That was great um, for us this morning. Um, before we begin, what, what I'd like for you to do is actually turn to 2 Samuel. Um, some of you are already flipping out. You're going, why are we going there? Chuck told you to preach Psalms. Stay on script. But I have a reason behind it. All right. A couple months ago, I had the uh, privilege to go with Chuck and Tad to a conference um, called Together for the Gospel, an interdenominational group of people coming together uh, to talk about our Protestant faith in the rest the, the Reformation, 500 years later. And uh, it was all centered around that history of uh, our tradition, our uh, Protestant faith and what we believe, standing firm in the gospel. And during that time, I was still thinking, what psalm am, am I going to share with Church on Mill? God, show me what you want me to do. And I'm reading through psalms, and I'm, I'm like, okay, that one's pretty good, but I don't really know if I want to do that one or whatever. And David Platt gets up, and he talks about Psalm 51 and the importance Psalm 51 had on the Reformation, right? And the psalm was so important in the Reformation that people had committed it to memory. So as they're going to the stake to be burned, and they see their wife and uh, their, their sons and daughters standing off to the side, and they're walking to their death, they're repeating Psalm 51 over and over and over again. And as a guy who loves history... Uh, that made me take a step back and say, you know what, I want to learn more about this psalm. I want to know why it was important during the Reformation, so important that people would repeat it over and over and over again, but I also want to know what is it about this psalm? What is it that, that it has to say to me personally, and what does it have to say to us as the church today in the world that we live in? And so today, we're going to look at um, Psalm 51. I am honored and um, grateful to be able to preach the word this morning. So before the psalm starts, it, it has this, uh, it kind of sets the context for us. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. So for those of you in the room who may not be familiar with it, or those of you who are familiar with it, we're just going to go through what happens, 2 Samuel 11, and then work our way to 2 Samuel 12. And so David, it says in 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. So we get this setting that it's a time in the spring when kings go to war. But yet David is noticeably absent, right? He doesn't go to war. We don't know why he doesn't go to war. Uh, we're not sure if he's just being rebellious in this instant or whether maybe he thinks that they're not that big of a threat, so he just sends them to go ahead and deal with it. 
or it's too dangerous a fighting for him to get involved. So he just decides to stay at home. But for whatever reason, it's a time when kings go to war, and he doesn't go. He stays. And in this instant, he's walking uh, on the rooftop of his palace, and he looks across, uh, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing on her roof. Right? And you would think, David has been uh, called a man after God's own heart. And you would think a man like David would see this woman uh, bathing on her rooftop and would say, you know what, I can't look at that. Right? I, can't, I can't look at her like this. I can't do this. This is wrong. Uh, this is not appropriate for me. But what he does is he looks at her, and uh, it gives the impression that he kind of stares at her. Right? Guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? You, it, he stares at her. And then he calls somebody over, and he says, who is that? And you say, well, that's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, right? The wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And it doesn't stop there, right? David gets someone else to go and grab her and bring her to him. And it says that he um, has sex with Bathsheba and sends her on her way, I guess thinking that that would be the end of it, right? I saw this woman. Uh, and I had a relationship with her, and she left, and that's it. But it's not it. Right? Dave, uh, Bathsheba sends word later that she's pregnant. Right? So David, like any noble person would do, tries to cover up his sin. Right? He goes, uh, all right, so now I've got to figure out a way to not get in trouble for getting someone else's wife pregnant. So what he does is he, call, he gets Joab to send Uriah the Hittite home. Right? And he gets Uriah, Uriah's like, hey, what's going on? Hey, I just really think you've been doing a good job out there. Right? It's kind of that idea. I, I think you've been doing really good. Why don't you just come home, uh, eat with me, uh, and then go home, relax, enjoy your wife, and then you can go back and fight tomorrow. Right? And so he sends him away. And Uriah, instead of going home, sleeps with, David's ser um, with his servants in their quarters and never goes home. And the servants come and they say, David, he didn't go home last night. And David's like, okay, that's not good. So Uriah, come back. Come here, come here, bud. Hey, why didn't you go home last night? And Uriah shows the type of man that he is. Right? He says, listen, I, I can't go home. I can't enjoy my wife while the ark of God is out fighting. Right? While the people of God are out battling and, and fighting. I can't, uh, in good conscience, go home and spend time with my wife and be comfortable because my, my people aren't, right? That's kind of a slap in the face to David, because what's he doing? He's in his palace. And David says, listen, okay, stay with me tonight. Stay with me tonight, eat with me, and let's have some drinks, right? And then you go back home, and you enjoy your wife, and then you go out. So David uh, eats with him. Uriah uh, drinks. It says that he gets a little drunk. Right? So David thinks, once again, I've won. He's going to go home. Uriah still, in his drunkenness, doesn't go home. He says, no, I'm going to sleep with the servants of the king because I don't feel that that's the right thing for me to do. So David, once again, as the honorable person that he is in this moment, decides to do something far beyond what most of us would imagine. He writes a letter, and he gives it to Uriah, and he says, hey, go to Joab and give him this letter. And Uriah doesn't know that the letter that he's taking is ultimately his death sentence. 
David tells Joab to put him on the front lines so that he'll be killed in battle. So Uriah goes, and he uh, takes it to Joab. Joab puts him on the front lines. He dies. Uh, he sends a messenger back to David and says, listen, David's going to be mad that we did this because that was not a good plan, but just tell him Uriah's dead. So he goes. Uh, he tells David, David's mad. Why would you do that? It makes no sense. Oh, yeah, by the way, Uriah's dead. And David goes, cool, right? Bathsheba, he at least is noble enough to give her time to mourn, right? So after the time of mourning is over, he takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And that's the end of the story, right? No. It's not the end of the story. David thinks that he can get away uh, with his sin, but ultimately uh, he can't get away from God. And that's where we pick up in 2 Samuel 12. verse 1, it says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You're the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord, to do what is evil in his sight? You've struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of his son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The consequences of David's sin are huge. Right? David is the king of Israel. Uh, Israel at the time is a very adulterous nation, so it's not like other people aren't doing these things. But as God's anointed king... He is the lawmaker of Israel. But in this instant, he's also the lawbreaker. Right? As Uriah the Hittite is out fighting, David's responsibility as king of Israel is to make sure that his wife is cared for and protected. And he abuses that authority by bringing her in and having sex with her and then killing her husband. I was reading one commentary, and they uh, put it this way. They said, to put it in our context of how, seriousness, how serious this sin is, uh, it would be to um, compare uh, the abuse, uh, someone in authority over a child and them abusing the child. 
So for example, um, it would be like having a teacher that you trust your, your child with and you send them to teach them and to love them and to care for them and that, child abuse, that, that teacher abuses your child or molests your child. Do you see how serious of a sin this is, right? The person that is in authority over someone you love doesn't take that seriously, but instead uh, uses it for their own gain and for their own goal. Except in this case, it's even worse, because it's almost like you taking your child, someone abusing, you, abusing your child, and then killing you and getting custody of your child. Isn't that crazy? The seriousness of what David did is not small. It's huge. It has huge implications for the nation of Israel. Could he possibly think that he could get away with such sin? Does he not know that the penalty for such sin is death according to the law? David knows. And David thought he could get away with it. And Nathan calls him out and confronts him. But the cool thing is, um, and we learn in 2 Samuel 12, before we even move to Psalm 51, we learn um, that David knew the seriousness of his sin before he even went and prayed to God. It says right after Nathan says, you're the man, right? David knows what he's done. He says, you're the man, and it says, David says, I have sinned against the Lord, right? He repents right there, right? I know what I've done. So Psalm 51 is a result of this confrontation with Nathan. And it's really great when we think about, um, it's not always easy to be confronted, but as a Christian, we need it. We need confrontation. So if you would, turn to Psalm 51, and let's look at David's um, prayer. Psalm 51 is also known as the the sinner's prayer um, because of what it is about. So Psalm 51, it's on the screen. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you. Um, Psalm 51, starting verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, 
A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David teaches us something very important about repentance in this psalm. So the first thing that we're going to look at is David's response. Right? David hears from Nathan uh, that God knows his sin. Right? And he responds, I have sinned against the Lord. And this is a response. But he, but he goes, if you notice, it says he goes straight to the Lord. Uh, verse 1, it says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And I was thinking about this, right? He goes straight to the Lord with his prayer, and he writes this down so that we have a blueprint of what it looks like to repent of our sins before God. And I met with, and Pat didn't know I was going to say this, I met with Pat the other week, and we were sitting down, and he asked me a very important question. He said, who do you go to, right? Who's your best friend? Who do you go to when something good or something bad happens? And I said, my wife. I said, I go to her first. And I let her know if something's good or something's bad. And we, right, she's my best friend. I said, that's the way that is. And I said, and then I've got some other friends that I call, and I let them know what's going on, and they encourage, we mutually encourage each other, and, and that's great. And he goes, that's, that's a good answer, right? Your wife is a good answer, but that's not the answer I wanted. <laughs> and I'm like, you? Um, no. Uh, he, said, uh, he said, no, 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 no. Jesus should be your answer. And I thought about it, and I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, you're right. Jesus should be. Like, I get it. Yeah, I do go to Jesus, but I thought you were talking about people, right? I'm just like, <laughs> um, and, and he said, but this is the thing. He said, I've asked several different people this question, and the response is always the same. And he said, it's great that you go to your wife and you share joys and pains and all that stuff with your wife. You should. But you should also take it to Jesus, when we are rejoicing over something, when we're in pain over something, we should go to Jesus and let our request be known to him. And David in this shows us that, right? He goes straight to the God, straight to God, and he appeals to his steadfast love, otherwise known as loyal love, right? He's loyal when we are faithless, uh, but he also appeals to his mercy. He knows that if he's ever going to find sin, that he's got to go to the one who can provide mercy for sin. He's got to go to the one who is steadfast and loyal in his love and will not let him down. Yes, he did have wives. Yes, he did have friends. But ultimately, he had to go to God with his sin. So David goes to God, and he pleads for mercy. Have mercy on me, according to your steadfast love. He's drawing from what God says about himself in Exodus 34, that I am um, slow to anger, right? I'm abounding in steadfast love. I show mercy on those who call upon my name from generation to generation. David knows this, so he goes directly to God. But also, David shows us something else about repentance. David sees his sin for what it is, rebellion against God himself. Um, <laughs> sometimes uh, we... As people, I do this too. And I was really challenged as I was reading this. Uh, and I, I told Pat when we met too, I said, this has really challenged me as I read Psalm 51 about whether I truly hate sin. Like, do I really hate sin the way God hates sin? Or is it just kind of like, meh, right? It's not that bad. 
But I started thinking about, um, I taught 6th through 12th grade Bible at a school in Charleston, South Carolina. And I used to have an idea, I grew up in uh, public school, I used to have the idea that private Christian school kids were like great kids. And I was wrong, right? And so there were two types of students that I particularly loved. And teachers in this room know what I'm talking about as soon as I say this. Um, that I particularly loved. And yes, I loved the students that did what they were supposed to do. They listened. They made A's, RB's, or C's or D's, as long as they had a good attitude. Um, right? I loved students like that. But in this particular uh, circumstance, two types of students I particularly loved were the ones who thought I was deaf and the ones who thought I was blind. <laughs> and some of you are going, I don't get that. But I guarantee you the teachers in the room know what I'm talking about. Right? For some weird reason, when I turn around and write on the whiteboard, uh, and I'm not looking at somebody, they think I do not hear anything. <laughs> and so I turn around, I'm writing on the whiteboard, I hear kids talking, I turn, I say, hey, y'all need to be quiet, you need to listen. Right? Turn around, start, start writing. Kids forget the fact that I've spent eight hours with them for a year or two, so I know their voice. <laughs> right? I know what they sound like as 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th graders, as their voice is changing, or whatever. Um, I know what's going on. And so I don't even turn around, and I call a kid out by name, and there's like one of two responses. It's either, how did you know it was me? That's amazing, right? How did you do that? Well, I know your voice, OK? Or it's, that wasn't me. But I know your voice. That wasn't me. You didn't see me do it, right? But I heard your voice. That doesn't matter, right? But the ones that really got me were the ones that thought I was blind, right? I, re I wear glasses now, but I didn't always wear glasses, OK? Um, but I can still see who's in front of me. And there would be a kid sitting right in front of me. He's messing with somebody next to him. He's wearing a hoodie. Like, for some weird reason, some of my kids brought um, invisible ink that you could pour on stuff, and then it would disappear, and so they thought they wouldn't get in trouble. And I look at this kid sitting directly in front of me, and he's pouring invisible ink in this kid's hoodie, right? And I'm staring at him. And I look at him, and I, I'm like, seriously? And he looks up and with these big eyes and goes, it wasn't me. <laughs> right? And I said, no, man, it was you. What do you mean it wasn't you? That wasn't me. I saw you do it. Right? You're right in front of me. I saw you. That wasn't me. Well, he's your twin brother? I guess. All right, cool, right? And then you write him up, and they cry about it, and they're like, I didn't do anything. I saw you do it. Right? But how often do we do that in our sin? We don't, we don't see our sin for what it is. We don't truly believe that God hears everything we do and sees everything we do. We don't truly believe that he's ever-present and all-knowing. We say that, but then when we sin, we act like David and say, eh, I'm going to brush this under the rug, and maybe nothing will come of it. But David teaches us something very important as he sees his sin in that way. He shows us that he doesn't want rehabilitation, but he wants cleansing. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Um, we live in a society where we typically want rehabilitation and not cleansing. Right? We, we go to God and we say, God, I, help me not to do this again. Right? I, just help me to set up walls in my life 
so that I won't go down the same path that I go in, right? It's like AA, like avoid the situation and it won't happen anymore. And that's good, but it doesn't change our nature, right? It doesn't change our sin. So David shows us, I don't want rehabilitation. It's not God, help me to do better. It's saying, God, cleanse me from the inside out. So I don't continue to do this. Not that I'm going to set up walls so I can avoid this anymore, but God, give me a hatred for this. Cleanse me from the inside out so I only want what you want. I only desire what you desire. That's what David does. But something else we can learn from David in this circumstance is that he doesn't make excuses for his sin. We love making excuses. Those students I told you about loved making excuses. They just weren't as good at it as me because I did that when I was their age. But David doesn't make an excuse for his sin. There is no self-justification. He doesn't um, put himself in the place of God and say, that wasn't sin. I was talking with uh, a few brothers the other night, and we were talking about, uh, and sisters, and we were talking about um, how people, when they're sinning and they're caught in sin, how they try to read the Bible to find justification for their sin. And then when they don't find an answer that satisfies what they want, they say, I guess the Bible doesn't say anything about it, so I'm going to continue doing it, right? How often do we try to justify what we're doing? It's sin. The Bible says it's sin, but we go, you know what? Uh, I know it may be sin for some people, or it may be sin for people in that place in time, but it's not sin now. It's not sin when I do it. But David doesn't do that. He knows that what he's done is wrong. He knows Um, that it is rebellion against God himself. But also, he doesn't blame his upbringing. Verse 5, it says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The idea of being totally depraved from birth, being utterly sinful from birth. And I tell parents all the time, I said, listen, if you want to see our sin nature played out, look at a little kid. Right? People are like, my kid is innocent. No, he's not. Right? Um, he is a little sinner, and that is okay, because we are too, okay? Um, but you look at them, you don't have to teach a kid to hit, steal, uh, lie, um, or any other number of things. Kids do that, okay? What, as parents, we have to do is we say, um, no, let's share, right? Don't hit, give hugs. Apparently, we taught our kid to kiss, and he's just kissing everybody. <laughs> and I've got to fix that, Okay? Um, but it's, um, it, it's, it's not in their nature to do that right away, right? As parents, we tell them, listen, don't do that. You, don't hit, don't lie, don't steal. Uh, that's not the right path to go. Why? Because they're born in sin. But notice what David does. He doesn't blame his mother for his sin. He says, I was born in iniquity, but he doesn't say, it's my mom's fault that I am who I am. But how often in our culture... Like somebody kills 20 people and they go, well, he shouldn't be guilty because he grew up in a neighborhood that was high crime and he was, he was around it every day. Okay, right? Or how often do we live in a society where they say, um, well, I know that this adult molested children, but you don't know that he was molested when he was a kid. And I get that those are circumstances that are sad and unavoidable in some situations, whatever. Like, he had nothing to do with that, but he does have something to do with his actions and his sin. Or how often as parents can we say, like, well, 
I, I don't do as well as a parent, or I don't treat my kids the right way because my parents didn't treat me the right way. Right? That's, that's crazy. We're responsible for what we do with our circumstances. So David doesn't blame outside circumstances for what's going on with him. He doesn't pull the Adam card and say, that woman you gave me, uh, she caused me to sin. Right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't make excuses for what's taking place. But also, he doesn't try to lessen the gravity of the offense. One question I particularly love from students, and not just here, but everywhere, is how bad was it? Right? I get, I get questions like that all the time. They walk up and they say, okay, this is what I did this week. Is that bad? Well, yeah, it's bad. Okay, but how bad is it? What'd you do? Well, I made fun of a kid. Well, what? Well, I didn't murder somebody, right? So it's, it's that idea of how bad is it, right? How bad is my sin? They don't realize that sin is sin, and sin is bad, no matter what it is. Like, well, I lied, but I didn't kill somebody. I didn't take somebody's wife, right? Okay, so that makes it better? No. David doesn't do that. David says, listen, God, I know the gravity of my offense against you. I know that it's worthy of condemnation and separation from you for eternity. He calls his sin what it is and doesn't try to make an excuse for it. And so as we look at repentance, what David is in a life of repentance, we see that he's, his response is to go immediately to God and to call sin what it is. But then David does something else that we can learn. Um, he makes a plea. David pleads to God's righteousness. Right? Only God, as king, can qualify a sinner to stand in his presence. David understands what it means to be a king. Right? We've all read the story of Esther, most of us. If you haven't, I'll summarize it anyway. Esther, her people are about to be killed, uh, and she has a choice to go before the king and ask him not to kill the Jews. Right? But she knows that by going before the king, she could face death. If the king didn't want her in his presence, and, he, and she walks up unannounced and just starts demanding something from him, either he can kill her, throw her in jail, or listen to what she has to say. David, as king, knows that people need permission to just enter his presence. They can't just walk up to him and say whatever they want to say whenever they want to say it, because there are penalties for that. There's punishment for that. And David knows that God, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not only has the authority to take life and to give it, but he has the authority to, take, uh, to give eternal life or to cast into eternal darkness, right? Eternal punishment. He knows that. So think about the audacity of what David's doing, right? He's going to God and he's saying, listen, uh, I want to stand in your presence. I want to speak directly to you and tell you what I've done. Because he knows that the only person that can qualify him is God, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But also, he knows that God, as priest, cleanses the confessing sinner. As priest, God cleanses the confessing sinner. Um, children, uh, by nature, get dirty. And somehow, my kid can find a mud puddle in Arizona. I don't know how it happens, but he can find mud, right? And you take him inside and he's covered in dirt and mud and food from somewhere that he found under something. And, um, and he comes inside and 
you start getting them ready to give them a bath and you're like, how did you get dirt in your diaper? Like, what's going on, man? Like, how did, did you stick it up your nose? Like, what's happening? Um, and, right, kids by nature get dirty. And parents, and we were talking about it the other night, and it was like, sometimes we forget to give our kids a bath. It's like, did you do that lately? Um, anyway, so we, um, we give our kids a bath, we put them in the tub, they're dirty, they're nasty, they're filthy, we put them in the tub, we put soap on them, we like scrub them up, we get their hair all nice, which will only last for like two seconds anyway, and then we clothe them and we put them to bed nice and clean and neat to get dirty tomorrow, right? <laughs> and um, we are like our kids, right? That is a great analogy of what we're like before God, right? We're dirty and filthy creatures in sin. We're sinful, we're rebellious, and only God as our Father can uh, take us inside and cleanse us from that filth and that nastiness in our life. And so as priest, God cleanses the confessing sinner, but also as judge, God blots out the sinner's guilty record. I have been to court, and I wish I could just say it was because my dad was a cop. I did go to court several times for that, but I went to court for a traffic ticket one time. Um, and that is not terrifying, but it is. And I went and I stood before a judge who was intimidating, and he said, guilty or not guilty? And I said, I am not man enough to tell you not guilty. Uh, I am guilty, give me my punishment. <laughs> Human judges have the authority to take life or to give life, right? They read a case, they see what's going on, and they can say, death, uh, imprisonment, or you're free to go. But David knows that as the judge of all, that God can blot out his guilty record. David knows what it means to be a judge, right? Nathan comes to him and he says, hey, listen, here's a story. Here's something that happened. And David's response immediately is, the man should die. And he should repay the guy, which I don't know the order on that. I don't think you can kill him and then get him to repay it, but whatever. So he tells him, he passes judgment on the guy. He knows that what he's done is wrong. But how much more so if a human judge can pass judgment and decide something like that, does God have the authority to do so uh, at the end of the age when we stand before him in judgment? David knows that it's not just, um, it's not him saying, you know what, it's forgiven, but it's God having to say, it's forgiven, I will not look on it anymore, and I will blot this out for all time. David gets that, he understands that. But lastly, as the creator, God remakes the sinner's heart. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David knows that God is the creator of the world. And I think sometimes we, we let that slide and we don't think about the huge impact that is. God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates everything in them. He creates man and woman in his image. And Adam messes it up in the garden, right? And once again, David doesn't ask for rehabilitation. He asks for cleansing. He asks to be a new creation. He knows that the miracle that God did at the beginning of time to create all things is the same thing that he needs in this moment of sinfulness. He needs um, not uh, walls or, or whatever to follow, but he needs God to create in him something new that he does not have. 
He needs God to start from scratch in his life and say, David, you follow me. Don't do this anymore. And he knows that as a creator, God can do that in his life. Think about that, guys. It's not, um, God, just help me to do better. It's, God, make me new because I, have it. I don't have it in myself. But lastly, he pleads um, to Christ's sacrifice. David's a smart guy. And David knew that these requests would have to cost God personally. David has seen the Old Testament sacrificial system. He knows that it's not what it needs to be. He knows that it's not enough for someone to take a goat or a ram or a dove and sacrifice it on an altar for the sins that they committed that year. Right? He knows that it has to be something more uh, to, to create forgiveness of sins than that. So David appeals to God because he knows that God has to do something crazy in order to save him from his sin. Something awesome. So David uh, knows that he is, there is a savior that is coming who will free him from his bondage to slavery. He knows that, that the Savior is coming who will provide forgiveness of sins through his blood in a way that the sacrificial system could not do. So only Christ's innocent blood could ultimately erase human guilt. Only Christ's perfect record of righteousness could substitute for iniquities. Only Christ's spirit can regenerate wills. Christ is the only sacrifice God is permanently delighted in. God didn't leave us in the dark. Genesis 3, right, they mess up, they sin against God, they make excuses for their sin, and God says, don't worry, uh, Eve, you will have an heir who will crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3, and the whole Bible is leading up to that point. David knows that. So God sends Christ into the world, fully God and fully man, right? Taking on flesh. And we talked about it the other night, uh, that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, right? He's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, right? It's not like God is some far-off being that wants nothing to do with you. But it's someone who has come in your place and done what you could not do. Where Adam failed in the garden Christ does not fail. Christ is tempted in every way as we are, yet is the perfect sacrifice. Uh, David knows that it's not enough for a good man to die for not so good people. But it would take a perfect sacrifice to cover the sins of the world. So Christ comes and lives the life that we could not live, and he dies on the cross in our place. Right, we deserve that, even to this day, but Christ has taken it upon himself. His blood covers us from our sins. He dies on the cross. Three days later, he's resurrected, and then he ascends and sits at the right hand of the Father forever. Right? He is the sacrifice that God is pleased with for all time. And it's cool that David knows that it's, it's, it's his spirit that regenerates wills. It, we are born in iniquity, so what does that mean? We choose sin from birth, right? We look at sin and we go, that's pretty good. Like, we like that. I'm going to keep doing this. This is pretty cool. 
Well, God doesn't want you to do that. I don't care. I want to keep doing it anyways. It's a lot of fun. Makes me happy, right? But then the Spirit comes in and renews our will, creates, like David's appealing for, creates in him a new heart. And all of a sudden, that sin that we once loved, we hate. And we say, God, I want you. I desire you. I want more of you. Only Christ can be the sacrifice to atone for sins. And as a result of that, salvation is a gift granted by God's good pleasure, never in response to our worthiness. Another way of putting that, joyful obedience and never pride is the response to grace. We have no reason to boast in ourselves. We could never be good enough. We could never do enough to earn God's good favor. We can't look at people and say, I'm better than you because I'm a Christian, because that's not anything you've done. It's what God has done in you. Right? The Bible says that we love God because he first loved us. By doing what? By sending Jesus to die on a cross and sending his spirit to live within us. We cannot earn our salvation, and we can do nothing to keep it. God does that. Whoever the Father holds in his hand will never depart. God is the author of salvation, and we have done nothing to earn his grace. So for us in the room today, we have a response to make. If you're not a Christian, um, and you've lived in sin, and you have said, this is not what this is about. This is not what life is about. I'm trying to find satisfaction in everything that the world can throw at me, but it's not what I need. It's not what my soul desires. Then you've heard that the response is not uh, sin, right? It's turning to God and giving your life to him in obedience to him. Laying your sins before him because he is um, steadfast in love and mercy and will forgive you your sins. But for those of us in the room who are Christian, this is a reminder for us of what our life needs to be like continually. It's not that we repent and we hate our sins once in our life and say, God, forgive me, and that's it. But we need to be people who continually walk in repentance before God. Our lives need to be consistently marked by this type of prayer over and over again. So when we look back at the Reformation and we ask the question, why is it important 500 years later, right? Why was it important then as they're being led to their death to die a martyr's death for God? And they repeated this. We know it's important for us today because this is what a Christian's life is like. Continuously asking for God's mercy and grace in our lives, appealing to God's righteousness, and ultimately appealing to God, to Christ's sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. Let's pray. God, um, I just thank you for all that you have done for us, God, for the grace that you have given to us, God, even though we're not deserving of it, for the free gift of salvation through Jesus. God, we praise you for that. We honor you for that. God, that's why we're here. You are worthy of our worship and our adoration. 
God, we thank you um, for David's example, not for the sinful example that he had, but God, his response to his sin. And God, may that um, ever characterize our lives as Christians. God, help us to confess our sins to you because we know that you are faithful and will forgive us our sins. God, give us joyful obedience as we seek to follow you day by day. And help us appeal to your, um, your righteousness and Christ's sacrifice. God, we thank you. We praise you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.